Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to this very special episode of Deep Cuts, the monthly bonus episode where usually we'd look more closely at a topic we covered in the past month of episodes. But it's our January hiatus, which means that there weren't any episodes, which means that there are no No rules. rules. No (laughs) no rules. So this time uh, we're finally introducing to everyone, the world, (laughs) um, our producer, our social media whiz, and all around excellent human, Jenna Hendrick. Woo. Yay. So Jenna has been working behind the scenes with us for several months now, and we wanted to shout her out to you, our listeners. Um, and so this will also be excerpted on the main feed. So Jenna will get introduced to everybody. So hello, hello everyone. <laughs> ah, yeah. So we, I don't know why we're addressing this three years in and not sooner, but we often get really lovely emails addressed to Anna and Amber and the podcast team as if we have a whole studio of production people, which is really flattering because for the past almost three, three and change uh, years, it has just been Amber and me doing everything except the final podcast network sound tweaks. So we research, we write, we edit, we publish, but now... We're a podcast on the grow, and it is your Patreon support, subscribers, that helps us pay Jenna for her time. Um, we'd also like to pay her more, so tell your friends to subscribe over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> this month, it's Jenna Uary. It's like if, oh. if the Mario brothers were to, it's a Jenna Uary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we've got Jenna here with us and we're going to do a hybrid interview slash roundup for y'all. That should be really, really fun. Um, so thank you for joining us, Jenna. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay! So we're going to do a mix of an interview. So we're going to do an interview <laughs> and then we're going to do sort of a mini, mini award show of sorts, yeah. um, which the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the subject what did you just did you have an oil drum under your desk <laughs> i just kicked something off the top of my mini fridge that like wow hit the, the hairpin leg of my desk some real resonance i know huh. um so the uh, so we're gonna do our little award show the subject of which will become evident as we talk to jenna yeah um but let's let's do the questions first yeah so could you please tell us about your trajectory? So what got you interested in anthropology and what has your path been so far? Yes, I've kind of always been in anthropology since I started college. It's more so I've dabbled a bit in every subfield or imagined myself in every subfield. Uh, So when I started college at SUNY Binghamton, I went in as a linguistics major because I wanted a job where I could... Wait, you could have explained linguistics to us this whole time? 
<laughs> no, I know nothing. Okay. Uh, okay. okay I great. Took one class. Yeah, no, I started. I took one class and then I realized that um, I actually did not enjoy the specifics of linguistics at all. Okay. I just liked That's what fair. language could tell you about a culture. Oh, um, and I liked that it reasonable. could have provided a way to travel. Yeah. Yeah. So um, linguistics was not for me. And after that, I took a sociocultural anthropology course and I was like, wow, I want to write ethnographies. This is so cool and fun. And I would really get to travel with this job. Um, But I'm a really picky eater. And so I figured that might be problematic. (laughs) And then I took a forensics course and wanted to work on human rights cases, but I'm too empathetic for that. I think I would get too depressed. So finally, we come to archaeology <laughs> and uh, archaeology was my least favorite of all the subdisciplines. I hate uh-huh. really uh-huh. burning passion. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, it was just so unbearably lifeless. Like we would just read this boring textbook and talk about the specifics of archaeological processes. And um, it, it was just boring. Didn't do it for you. No, I didn't see why it was important. And, but my school was offering a month long field school at a Magdalenian open air settlement site in France. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Père Blanc. And so since it was in France, I figured I would give it a go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, it was freaking awesome. Um, It was so fun. The professors there, they really made the site come to life. And, you know, they made it a point to emphasize that they were real people who lived at this site. Um, And they weren't just these, you know, a morphous abstract beings who created tools um they were actual people who had lives and feelings and did things and I think it also really helped that I was able to actually physically touch these artifacts um and like we went to cave sites and stuff so I saw the cave paintings like I yeah I don't know really how to describe it but just the fact that I could be like in such close contact and so like I don't know, with these items that were last touched by someone tens of thousands of years ago just blew my mind. So I've just been really into the Paleolithic and human evolution ever since that excavation. It was just so fun and interesting. Day one, I learned something new. You know, we call them cavemen, but um, mm-hmm. it turns out they didn't actually live in caves. They no, lived not in a lot of the habitation sites yeah. that they made themselves. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> And so, so I, I assume that since then, like since, since that, that first course that you took in archaeology, you have had professors and sort hope, of oh, um, experiences that, that D- did better, that were, were yeah, <laughs> that, that humanized the past for you a bit better. Or were you like, I'm just <laughs> clinging to this one experience I had in France and be like, I'm going to find it again. <laughs> Um, no, I definitely got better from there. Okay. Um, although, to be honest, all the classes that I took that really like hammered home the fact that I wanted to be in archaeology were by the co-directors of the yeah. excavation. Okay. Anyway. So, okay. I mean, really like, I mean, good. there's Kathleen Sterling, Sebastian Lacombe. Thanks if you're out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> They're the ones who got me into archaeology. Good teaching makes a big difference. 
It yeah. does. Yeah. Good teaching is what got me into it. Yeah. Yeah. Now look at me. Look at you go. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And Thank then you. so that was your undergrad experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That was all undergrad as a segue maybe into what my master's shaped up to be. Yes. Um, while I was still in my undergrad, uh, you know, clearly I was upset with archaeology and kind of anthropology in general because I didn't realize how cool the past could be. Um, and I <laughs> Why didn't cheap. anyone tell me? <laughs> no, like literally I was so upset because <laughs> I just feel like we have... I don't know, these general societal assumptions about what the past looked like and how that affected our lives today. And it's just so not, it doesn't add up. It's not true. I wanted to um, figure out how we could better, I guess, educate people and not just students. Um, And so I ended up coming full circle and I used ethnographic research methods in my master's to look at archaeology and how archaeological information is communicated so that we can do it better. Yay. Well, so (laughs) perfect segue. Uh, Your master's thesis looked at pop culture and media portrayals of human life in the past. So what was there a particular moment where you realized that that could be a thesis project or what first kind of got you thinking about that? Yeah. So, um, going back to undergrad, um, I took a number of courses with Kathleen Sterling after the excavation, um, archeology in the media, ice age fiction and feminist archeology. span Um, and so the media one, was awesome and very relevant to the frustrations I was having because we basically looked at how clickbaity and sexy all of these news article stories are that come out and how it's just the same stories repeated over and over again that just kind of reify our current behaviors, uh, but it's not actually telling us anything new or really exciting. And then Ice Age Fiction was just all sorts of novels about the Ice Age. It was so fun. And I was also an English major at the time, so I was really nerding out with that. Mm. And Feminist Archaeology. So in that class in particular, we read What This All Means by Janet Spector. Uh And that just, that really inspired me. Yeah. Um, And We'll talk about more of my inspirations when we get once we get to our award show. Yes, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So a lot of the things we read in Ice Age fiction solidified that story and narrative could be cool. So yeah. for my honors thesis in undergrad, I wrote about why uh, narrative is important to archaeology. So the element of story, um, and then I mean that was all. Like I wrote my own short story based on Pere Blanc and then did a lot of um, reading on how narrative, I guess, impacts your educational experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for the most part, that was all just lit review kind of. So for my master's thesis, I could finally test it out. So I... Uh, well, when you, sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but when you say narrative, when you talk about... Um, sort of looking at narrative there in your um, undergraduate thesis, do you mean um, developing a narrative yourself, like as, as the person or or the narrative through which you are taught 
that like is it sort of like constructing your own narrative or receiving a narrative from someone else so, I'm thinking about like you writing a short story versus you being mm-hmm. in a class where the professor did a terrible job of like communicating <laughs> <laughs> that humans well, occupied the past yeah kind of both um okay. so I I like really focused on fiction and just this idea of um having to fill in some elements of past lives with your imagination kind of um but also just as a way to connect all of the data dots you know into one bigger image um because one of the things that frustrated me with my archaeology classes was that we would look at you know pottery or stone tools we're looking at all of these things very individually and i had no idea how they related what it could tell us it just was too far flung. And so fiction is a good way to bring everything together to get this bigger picture. So I was looking at it in terms of like, all right, if you are reading fiction or reading a narrative or watching or hearing one, what does that do for you? What kinds of memories is that leaving for you? Is it affecting how you learn or what you think about that kind of scenario or those people? But at the same time, narrative and fiction can be really important tools for archaeologists themselves because um like while i was writing the short story you come across all of these instances where you're like well okay do we actually have data for this like do we have any evidence of um what they could have worn or um you know how Right. Like as you're as you're building the world. Yeah, exactly. Are you basing it on something real or is this purely imaginary? Exactly. Yeah. And so it can help show you where these different gaps in knowledge are, um, but also whether or not well, the data we have does fit into the story that we've told ourselves. But have we fully looked at it all together? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Maybe sometime you can share some of your short story. Sure. If you feel yeah. up to it. I'm reading. Putting you entirely on the spot. <laughs> I wrote it many like years ago. Guy. So maybe after a round of edits or two. <laughs> sure. Oh, I understand that. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who wants to look at the past in a way that weaves in our own experience as as curators and sometimes creators of the past? This, the, and, and also sort of a, like a, a little appendix to that question I think it's like extremely cool that you had coursework as an undergraduate that accepted the past as something we construct um like that's something that yeah I I wish someone had yeah that's something that I did not think about until I left temporarily left the field um and so the fact that you were able to um like sort of part of you were like formative period uh was informed yeah. by that so um i yeah i would i would really like love to hear any anything that you have to sort of share about um how to how to do that intentionally or um how to how to pull in like our own experience and our and our own position as narrators um in in looking at the past I was trying really hard to think about this question because it's like kind of hard. And I feel like this is really basic and like (laughs) advice, but just keep an open mind and keep an eye on your biases. Thinking about how the past can connect to modern life 
or like in, inform modern life for the future. I feel like it's on such a thin line of um, crossing over into the idea of like unilinear evolution. I mean, this idea that like we we can inform anything based on the past. Sure, that there's a that there's a destination yeah. or sort of mm-hmm. the fact that if you can connect past dots, then you can extrapolate to the future as if oh, like establishing a pattern. Those, yeah, that like we, yeah, we see as if those pattern, dots are so leading we somewhere. We'll continue this way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That, what that means. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So okay. I think just knowing that, like, I don't know, I guess one of the the constants is change, you know, that we can change and that things have changed a lot, you know, as we've evolved and they're going to keep changing. And then I guess in terms of communicating is understanding, like, the difference between what the data says the past was like versus what people think the past was like. Something that I found during my master's research is that it doesn't matter what paleoanthropology has said. Um, The public has very clear ideas about what the Paleolithic looked like and what that means for our society today. And, And so it's these, I don't know, modern perceptions that I think are more impactful than actual data. I yeah. don't know if I'm making we, any sense. No, that, I mean, it makes it, this is, I am really into this. I'm okay. really glad that this came up. Uh, and I, I, um, with, I would like, uh, I want to hear more about this because it sounds so in thinking about, in thinking about narratives and thinking about sort of constructing a past, sort of taking, taking data, whether mm-hmm. it's, whether it's fictive data or like data, like like a data on the ground, uh, in the ground, um, and and sort of constructing a past. So that is construct. I'm like getting back to. Oh my god, I'm getting back to like my Berkeley theory days. Like this is uh, parentheses reconstructing. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you have because both both pasts, like sort of the the public perception past and the um, paleoanthropologic, like uh, yeah, the the, the paleolithic archaeologists like the anthropological past both of them are constructed like both both of them have been created and are used as tools for uh well um, I guess it could be like I'll see if this is you can let me know if this is nonsense or not um they are used for tools um in part to understand the past but also to use as a mirror that we reflect modernity against. And so the sort of public, the, the like the pop cultural paleolithic. The pop culture past. Yeah, the pop culture past, um, you can tell me, maybe completely divorced from sort of the archaeological record and the, the evidence that we have. But in its own way, it is real and it is meaningful and it is valuable. And it informs our understanding, like our our modern identity and our understanding of modernity. And so does that, do you, did you take that as like real in its own way? It's, it's not real as a, as though we are playing like a film. It's not data-based, but it is valid and Right, and right. Like it's, it's something that, because also the data changes. So something that is data-based mm-hmm. is not objective it's still partial 
So I just did like the classic like podcaster question where I just talked at you for several minutes and I was like, yeah, uh, but I, I want to hear more. <laughs> I want to all to say, I want to hear more about these like two very different, but perhaps sometimes overlapping realities of the past mm-hmm. um, that, that we contend with as science communicators and researchers and humans. I guess kind of going back to something like what you had said about um, the popular construction of the past still being real um, and impactful. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And so the data is changing, too. So something I found when I was interviewing and surveying people. um, And also, I want to preface this by saying I um, the community I worked with was very homogenous. It was a small sample size. So my data is important, but I know not to generalize it. There's okay. my little caveat. Okay, good. So anyway, yeah. um, but what I found during my interviews was that um, all of these perceptions that people had of the deep past were really rooted in basically like archaeology of the 80s. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was based in data, just very long ago data you know they it hasn't really caught up and so a lot of the ideas though that they were communicating to me are ideas that um fit well with understanding america today um which for my master's thesis i kind of just classified as white american exceptionalism a good example of a way in which data is kind of reconstructed and reconstrued to make it fit that narrative Mm -hmm. is um, people's perception of violence. So like there's this idea that for my participants, at least that violence is this innate characteristic we have. Um, It is biologically ingrained. And, you know, they always talked about it is it's a a human homo sapiens biological characteristic. Yeah. And this, their evidence for it is, you know, all of the world wars, um, basically just history. Um, you know, so nothing sure. yeah. in the deep past. But then when they talk about the people who actually enact this violence and when and where this violence is happening, um, it is only being done by men. Mm-hmm. So now an innate biological characteristic is actually only male. Um, yeah, because it's on the the Y chromosome, yeah. right? Is that that's yeah. <laughs> um, and um, it tends to happen. So, so something I uh, asked was, you know, what would happen if um, a Homo sapiens group came across Neanderthals, and everyone said that there would immediately be a fight. We'd we have to fight the Neanderthals. And then violence changed because it was, well, but if they saw another homo sapiens group, no, they probably wouldn't immediately fight. So even though yeah, we because fight groups of homo sapiens now. now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So it's always changing. And then it's so yeah. I interpreted that as, OK, so it's, you know, now coming down to Neanderthals being the ones where we have to be violent because they're the other. And so we're seeing this today because we have all of this, you know othering with right and, and so there, there becomes right, yeah. like a, a hierarchy of humanness mm-hmm. and like you're as long as there is somebody that you can unify against mm-hmm. you're sort of on the same 
Uh You might be other, but if you're less other than the other other, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is, um, this, this really tracks with, um, I listen to a lot of Infowars and like the, the rhetoric of, of mm. Alex Jones and like looking at sort of this, this idea of that it's like human nature and that it's a matter of like, and, and it, it gets framed within like evangelical Christianity of like, they're like this like barbarous nature that we have. And it's only through, you know, terms like discernment and, and sort of like reaching for some kind of um, like towards God, like the sort of idea of like righteousness that you, that you become, that you kind of overcome these things, these like baser human aspects that um, other groups are not as capable of of moving past or reaching beyond. Um, and so every time he talks about the past or like archeology span or things, I'm just like, why are you getting this? And because it's, it's clearly something that is understood. Like they're sort of a, like a like lingua franca about the past among. I have a theory about that. I sort of suspect that anytime an idea derived from the archaeological record that is big enough to make an impact on the public. Every time that that happens, the time it takes for that information to kind of trickle outwards and become, Amber, like you said, kind of a lingua franca, like an an understood idea. By the time that that happens, that information is then like 20 years out of date. And I think I I genuinely think that that a lot of the sort of beliefs or understandings of the past held by people who don't sort of actively pursue information about the past, they're just sort of things that people know without really knowing how they know that kind of information is trailing, you know, 10 or 20 years behind the population that's sort of more closely tied to the actual research. And so... I think now that's starting to change because there's really much more of a push for um, communication and effective communication of things like archaeology. So I think, I hope that that's, we're going to close that gap. We're not going to close that. We're going to shorten that gap by a few years, hopefully. Um, but I think, I think that might be a big part of it. Hmm. I'd agree with that. Um, especially because, well, something else I found in my research is that, uh, so people think that the most accurate kind of scientific information you could get from popular media would be either books or, um, you know, online news articles. But mm-hmm. it turns out that um, people don't actually read either of those all that much. And um, <laughs> and when I was looking at online articles um, at the news sites that my participants said they look at, um, they either don't really mention much about paleolithic or human evolution all that frequently and that which they do mention again is only relating to things that we're already familiar with today or that we're already doing today um all of this accurate data that's coming out is only used to validate what we're already doing rather than actually telling people anything new can i ask what was the age range of your participants Um, I worked with high schoolers through, so I think youngest was probably 14 through 65. Okay. Okay. So right smack in the middle there. It's going to be hard to (laughs) close that gap. I think unless, um, 
people are willing to branch out into other forms of communication, like podcasting, which is awesome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> more, more visual things, I think. Yeah, things that are more approachable. Yeah. Yeah. And is this research that you are planning to continue? Or after your master's, you were like, I'm going to be part of the change I want to see in the world. And I'm going to like get into like science communication. Like, was that sort of what you came away from? Yeah. Um, more of the second. Okay. Um, okay. I, I gotta be honest, my master's really burnt me out. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine doing a PhD and just like, I don't really like the bureaucracy of universities, if we're going to be honest. I just don't know if I'd be able to change that much from within the university. Um, I'm glad that you were able to come to that conclusion now and walk away with the degree. (laughs) Yeah. And um, yeah, like, because that's something that a lot of people don't get to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, That they they're sort of in too deep and they have like the sunk costs and then they Mm -hmm. um, I've known a lot of people who have Mm. come to similar conclusions. Yeah, Uh, like I really would love to continue the research, but that does seem kind of uh, difficult, if not in a university setting. So, yeah, (laughs) we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so we're going to take a quick ad break and then we will come back and ask Jenna our our classic two final questions. And we've abbreviated the interview portion of this because we're doing our awards show for the second half. So we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. We're still with Jenna. She's still here. She didn't leave. And now our two hardest questions. First of all, what is the best thing about anthropology? I think the best thing about anthropology is that you can study basically anything under the sun. Uh, you know, I mean, I started in anthropology, just bopped around, and I didn't have to once think about leaving the field. It was great. I could just <laughs> pick whatever interest I wanted. Um, yeah, so I really like that it's kind of more of a skill set, a mindset than really any one topic. Anthropology, uh-huh. it's a state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, it is. Yeah. No, it it is. Uh, yeah. Um, 
And then the last question, Mm. um, if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in the past or in the history of anthropology itself, um, what would you want to see? Um, I know this has been said before, but I'd really want to see the first time that uh, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals came in contact. Oh, and they had a like... A too. jets and sharks oh. level fight. Oh, we went different yeah, you know, directions. I just, although as a fly, I wish I could be like a mind reading fly. Like I want to sure. know what they were thinking. Like, did they really think each other looked very different? Were they just like, huh? Like, what are these new people? Maybe we can be friends. You smell different. Like, I just want to know. Right. Well, I mean, since we're constructing the reality that you are a fly on the wall of the of a cave in the Paleolithic or whatever, like you can be a mind reading fly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we we're just like slowly changing. The yeah, we have the technology for none of us, so we can't turn you into a fly. We can't boost your mind reading abilities. I'm sorry. Well, we're gonna take one more very quick ad break. Anna's gonna blow her nose again. Nope. Nope. This. Uh, this one is just an ad break. Um, and, and then we will explain what the awards show is and what we're going to do with our choices. And then that will conclude the part of this episode that's going on the main feed. The rest of it is going to be behind the paywall on our Patreon, which again, you can um, head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast to look at all the different tiers for support that we have for the show and check out what the bonus monthly episodes are. So you can learn about that. Quick ad. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, we're back. And so now... We're going to have some fun with Jenna's interest in portrayals of the ancient past in modern media. And so Amber and Jenna and I have each chosen a best and worst or possibly favorite and most disliked example of how the human past, and I think mostly the Paleolithic, did we all kind of center on the Paleolithic? Yeah, I thought that was the assignment. It was, but I realized that I had, (laughs) I think I had said the past um, in an earlier iteration of this in an email. So mm, quick peek behind the curtain, but how these things are portrayed in pop culture and the media. And so this is all opinion based. Put your emails away. Don't add us on Twitter. This is opinion based. And we will post our choices on social media. So we'll tell you what we chose, but all the description and kind of the the back and forth and the discussion of why these things are good or bad or favorite or not favorite, uh, that's going to be for patrons. 
So thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. This is where I'm going to end the episode. Okay. (laughs) Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.